The other guests and I were all in the presence of a small screen, similar to the ones we use for the Molteni projections. After a few moments, a still photograph of the place Balakor in Lyon appeared in the projection. A little surprised, I barely had time to say to my neighbor, is it to show us projections that we are disturbed? I've been making them for more than 10 years. I was just finishing my sentence when a horse dragging a truck started moving towards us, followed by other cars, then passerbys. In a word, all the activity of the street. At this spectacle, we all remained speechless, stunned, surprised beyond all expression. At the end of the presentation, it was delirium and everyone was wondering how they could have achieved such results. Written by Georges Méliès after seeing the Lumiere Brothers' first films. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie. What about the Twinkie? They have 500 years of democracy and peace. And what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. I don't know whether I even want to go out with Jeff again. The High Court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. Well, hello there. My name is Jeff Kelly. Welcome to the 35th episode of Celluloid Days, a podcast of film and film history. On this episode, I'm going to talk about the French illusionist and film director Georges Méliès. Now, if you are like me, you probably know the name Georges Méliès from his film Voyage Dans la Lune, better known as A Trip to the Moon. You might know that he's known for creating special effects in early films, and hopefully you've seen the wonderful 2011 film Hugo by Martin Scorsese starring Sir Ben Kingsley. The thing is, if you're like me, that's about all you know about this legendary filmmaker. Well, if so, you might enjoy the following podcast because I'm going to look into the man and his amazing accomplishments. The story goes that on December 28, 1895, Melies attended a special private demonstration of the Lumiere Brothers' Cinemagraph. The brothers showed ten films to a paying audience in the Grand Café in Paris. Melies was so amazed by what he saw that soon afterwards he offered the brothers 10,000 francs for one of their machines. Louis and Auguste refused. They told him that they were doing him a favor as they told him the motion picture was a fad and wouldn't last. But more likely, the real reason was they just didn't want to give up their secrets. Not yet. But Melies was put under the spell of film and was determined to purchase filmmaking equipment. And luckily for him, the Lumiere brothers weren't the only people working on this new invention. He traveled to London and purchased a machine called the Animatograph from a man named Robert William Paul for 1,000 francs. The machine was actually sort of a ripoff of Edison's kinescope something that Edison couldn't prevent from being sold in Europe. The projector wasn't up to the standards as the one made by the Lumiere brothers, but he was still able to use it in his theater, Robert Houdin. Oh, and really quickly, before I go on any farther, I just wanted to say that I'm going to pronounce things the Americanized way. I don't speak French, and I would rather not try, so I apologize to any French-speaking people out there. He was born Marie-Georges Jean Méliès on December 8, 1861 in Paris. 
he was the youngest of three sons. His father owned a high-quality boot factory, and his family was quite wealthy. He was able to attend some of the most prestigious schools for a formal classical education, yet his focus wasn't on his lessons. With an artistic passion, he would often spend his class time sketching portraits or characters of his professors or classmates. By 10, he had a cardboard puppet theater, and as he got older, he moved into more sophisticated marionettes. After school, he served a year in the military. Actually, some sources say three, others say one, so I'm not really sure. After, he hoped to train as a painter, but his father insisted he join the family boot business, which he did. But then, in 1884, he took a business trip to London that changed his life. He was sent to London to learn English and establish contacts for a branch of the family business. He spent his time there working in a shoe store and then in a clothing boutique. For entertainment, he began to attend the London Theatre. And since he knew little English, he began to attend more visual productions, pantomimes, and magic acts. He marveled at the productions with their lavish sets and magical special effects. This all appealed to Melier's sense of whimsy. He watched such productions as Red Riding Hood, The Golden Ring, and Cinderella. He was amazed during Cinderella as he watched the scene in which the fairy's Electra flew down with the glass slippers. Much of what he saw would influence his later filmmaking. He spent a lot of time at the Maskeline in Cook's Egyptian Hall, a theater that specialized in magic acts. There he met and became friends with John Neville Maskeline, a renowned illusionist. He specialized in weaving his magic acts with a narrative structure. Soon, Méliès was performing magic himself. He returned to Paris and began performing magical acts for friends and family. He had hoped to become a full-time magician, but his father wouldn't allow it. So he kept working in the factory. In 1885, he married a wealthy woman whose dowry provided him with the funds to develop his magic act. When his father retired in 1888, the family business was divided among he and his two brothers, and he quickly sold out to his brothers. Now, with the money from his business and his wife's dowry, he was able to buy the theater Robert Houdin. This theater was founded by Eugene Robert Houdin. He was a French watchmaker, magician, and illusionist. He lived from 1805 to 1871 and is widely regarded as the father of the modern style of conjuring. He was the man that American magician and escape artist Harry Houdini took his name. Anyway, Mel Yeas took over the theater as owner and manager. He also designed sets, invented tricks, and performed. When he bought the theater, it was struggling with attendance, and he spent almost nine years working on it, improving the show and hiring new talent. Originally, he began doing acts inspired by Robert Houdin, but soon designed and began performing original acts. One of his best-known illusions was the Bracasseltent Decapitated Man, in which a professor's head is cut off in the middle of a speech, but he continues to talk until it's returned to his body. And as time went on, audience attendance grew at the theater, and he began hiring the best illusionists. With that, he spent less time performing himself. This allowed him time to create more complicated tricks. At the theater, he also met Jean Dalcy. She had been at the theater before he took it over and was soon part of his act. She also was his mistress. The theater was doing very well, 
And then on December 28, 1895, he saw the Lumiere Brothers Cinemagraph. And, like I said earlier, they refused to sell him one. Now, the actual date he attended the screening is a bit of a debate. But most historians use the December 28th showing, so I'll go with that as well. Anyway, he took the projector he purchased, the animatograph, and reverse-engineered it to make a camera himself. In September 1896, Melies, with the help of two friends, invented and patented a cast-iron camera projector that they called the Kintograph Robert Houdin. Melies would refer to it as the coffee grinder due to the sounds that it made. But less than a year later, camera technology had gotten so good that he forgot about his own invention, and he bought equipment made by companies like Goumont, Lumieres, and Pathé. He shot his first film in May of 1896 and began throwing him at the theater by August. He soon formed the Star Film Company. At first, his films were little more than copies of what he had seen at the Lumiere Brothers, just little bits of life like men playing cards. That all changed one day when he was out in the street filming. How much of this is actually true, I'm not sure if anybody really knows, but the story goes that Melies was filming a bus with his camera when it jammed. Soon, however, he got it running again and didn't think much of it until he reviewed the footage later. He noticed that the bus magically changed into a hearse, and people in the shot were also replaced by other people. He was quick to see the magic that this created. What he had discovered was special effects. Now, he actually wasn't the first to do this, as Thomas Edison used this technique when he depicted a decapitation in the execution of Mary Stewart in 1895, and that a real woman was replaced by a dummy so they could chop off the head. But for Melies, this was something new, and he began to realize that he could do all types of things with special effects, and he began experimenting. Now, he often starred in his own films, like the one called The One Man Band. Melies appears on the screen with seven chairs behind him all in a row. He sits in the first chair, then gets up and sits in the second, but he's also remaining in the first. Then he does it again, gets up in the second, sits in the third. Again, he is still in the first and second chair. And each time he does this, he has a different musical instrument. Finally, there are seven Georges Melies sitting in seven chairs with seven musical instruments. And they begin to play. Of course, this is a silent film, so we can't hear the tune. I don't know if you can appreciate just how remarkable this was. You see today, using digital technology and editing programs like Adobe Premiere and After Effects, one could easily accomplish this effect. But this was in the year 1900, and all the filmmaker had was his camera. What he had to do was film the complete actions of the first milliers all the way to the end of the film, then rewind it in the camera, and then film the second milliers, and so on and so on. Oh, and to make things more difficult, he had to mask out everything but his current self, otherwise the other parts of the film would not only be overexposed, but without masking, all the other Georges would appear ghostly. He had to shoot the same roll of film over seven times to get the effect. And he had to time it right so all the Meliers would seem to be acting together, even though he couldn't see what he already had filmed. And he wouldn't know if he got it right until he developed the film and watched it. Another amazing film of his was called The Vanishing Lady, 
In this film, Meliès brings a lady into the frame, has her sit in a chair, and then covers her with a sheet. When he pulls the sheet off, she's gone. Waving his hands in the air, suddenly a skeleton appears. He covers the skeleton with the sheet, and voila, it turns back into the lady. I saw another one in which he keeps removing his own head over and over again and placing his heads on a table. And there's another one where he uses an air pump to make his own head huge. Like I said, this was all done in camera, which is remarkable. The planning to accomplish this was amazing. But what Melies was doing was beyond just amazing special effects. He began to add narratives into his film, something that had begun with the remarkable Alice Guy Blachet. Filmmakers like Melies and Guy Blachet saw the power of storytelling in film right away. But it also became a necessary change. While the public may have been mesmerized with simple little films like a train pulling into a station, it was only a matter of time before the novelty of it wore off. But for Melies, his storytelling couldn't be limited by the couple of minutes of film that would fit into a camera, so he began to tape together reels to make longer films. He invented editing. He's also credited for things like the fade-in and the fade-out and cross-fading between two shots, techniques that are still used today. Yet, it must be stated that his films were still shot like a stage play, with the cameras front and center as if it was an audience member in the first row. In September 1896, Melies began to build the world's first permanent film studio just outside Paris. It was constructed entirely of glass walls and a ceiling. It was like a giant greenhouse as to allow in the maximum amount of sunlight needed for film exposure. The studio's dimensions were identical to the theater Robert Houdin, and like the theater, it was equipped with trap doors, trick panels, and ramps. He also had sheds for dressing rooms and buildings for sets and costumes. And because colors, while filming in black and white, would often result in strange looks, all sets, costumes, and actors' makeups were of shades of gray. He worked long 10-hour days. For his filmmaking, he did almost all the work himself, from building sets and props to writing, filming, starring in and editing his own films, while at the same time working in the theater in the evenings. In 1896, he made 78 films in the following year, 52. He made all types of movies, documentaries, comedies, historical reconstructions, dramas, magic tricks, fairy stories, in which he is most well known for, and even erotic or stag films. Over a 15-year period, he made 520 films. Unfortunately for Melies, many of his films were pirated, especially in the United States. His most famous film, A Trip to the Moon, was sold all over the world with a star film logo removed. Producers such as Thomas Edison, Sigmund Lubin, and William Selig produced illegal copies of his films and made large amounts of money from them. Speaking of Thomas Edison, he did everything in his power to keep Melies and his films out of the United States. In 1899, Melies made The Fairy Cinderella, based on the fairy tale. It was a six-minute-long film, his first to have multiple locations, and it was very successful across Europe and the United States. This upset Edison to no end, as he always felt threatened by competition, 
especially from foreigners. He did his best to block Melies from screening most of his films in the U.S., but later found it easier just to dupe his own prints and release it himself. In response, in the year 1900, Melies and others established the Trade Union International Congress of Film Producers in Paris. This was a way to defend themselves in foreign markets. Melies was made the president of the union and served till 1912. And for eight or nine years, he was extremely successful, even if he only saw a fraction of the profits from his films. In 1903, he attempted to safeguard his financial interests in the United States by sending his brother to New York to open a branch office responsible for registering the films for U.S. copyright and for selling his prints directly to the American market. For the U.S. copyright, he needed a film negative to send to the United States, while at the same time having a negative to keep in France. He solved this problem by filming his movies with two cameras, one operated by his daughter, so each film was recorded twice. But with all his problems, Georges kept creating magnificent films, like in 1903 he made the poetic The Kingdom of the Fairies. At 17 minutes, it was considered very long for its day. It was his most ambitious star film production to date. And like a lot of his major works, including A Trip to the Moon, he had many of the copies hand-painted to create color. Parts of Kingdom of the Fairies were shot through a fish tank to give the impression of fish swimming with the actors. In 1904, he produced The Impossible Voyage, a 20-minute film, which was a satire of scientific exploration in which a group of geographically-minded tourists attempt to journey to the sun using various methods of transportation. Another grand success for Melies. The film critic Louis Jacobs said of this film, This film expresses all of Melies' talents. In it, his feelings for caricature, paintings, theatrical invention, and camera science became triumphant. The complexity of his tricks, his resourcefulness with mechanical contrivances, his imaginativeness of the settings and stupendous tableaus made this film a masterpiece for its day. Unfortunately, this was the high point of his career. His style of filmmaking, with its front static camera, and stories about fairies, was falling out of style. Rather than being an innovator, he began to follow modern trends like crime films. Film scholar Miriam Rosen said of this that he lapsed into a repetition of his old formulas on one hand and an uneasy imitation of new trends on the other. In 1908, he was forced to join Edison's motion picture patent company, also known as the Edison Trust. The thing is, if he didn't join, Edison threatened to begin patent infringement lawsuits, as Edison, of course, held many patents. The MPPC was part of Edison's attempt to control the entire film industry, and they were more interested in the quantity of films released rather than the quality. It was business over art. Melies was now obliged to supply the MPPC with 1,000 feet of film per week, in a mad rush to fulfill his obligations, he made 58 films his first year, and his work suffered. Yet he attempted to still create some major works like Humanity Through the Ages, a film now presumed lost, which is an episodic narrative displaying examples of humankind's brutality. He was very proud of this film, even though it was a huge box office flop. 
In autumn of 1910, Melies made a deal with Charles Pathé. It was a strange deal that ended up destroying his career. In exchange for a large sum of money, Pathé would edit and distribute his films. Strangely, with this agreement, the deeds to both Melies' home and studio went to Pathé. Yet he kept producing some real ambitious films, like The Diabolical Church Window in 1910, Baron Munchhausen's Dream in 1911, and The Conquest of the Pole in 1912. These were all expensive failures. Also in 1912, he made a 54-minute version of Cinderella that Pathé cut down to 33 minutes in order to make it more profitable. Despite the effort, the film would not enjoy the success of his earlier 1899 film. When Méliès broke his contract with Pathé, it left him heavily in debt. In 1913, he lost everything, and it was a horrible time all around. His brother Gaston had traveled to Tahiti in the summer of 1912 with his family and a crew of 20 to film documentaries. This was in a large part to help Melies fulfill his contract with the MPPC. Unfortunately, much of the film he shot was damaged while being shipped back. Gaston lost $50,000 and had to sell the American branch of the Star Films to the Viagraph Studios. Now Melies was unable to fulfill his requirements to Thomas Edison. Gaston and George Melies never spoke to one another again, and Gaston died two years later. Because of all that was going on, as well as the horrors of World War I, Melies stopped making films. And then in May 1913, his first wife died, leaving him alone to raise their 12-year-old son, Andre. The war shut down his theater for a year, and the studio was taken over by the French army to use as a military hospital. They also took 400 of his films to melt down to help the war effort. The celluloid was used to make boot heels for the soldiers. And even if he wanted to return to filmmaking, he was way too much in debt to do so. In 1923, the theater Robert Houdin was torn down. That same year, Pathé was finally able to take over Star Films and his studio. In a rage, Melies sadly burned all the negatives of his films that he had stored there, as well as most of the sets and costumes. Melies was now selling candy and toys at a shop in the Gare Montparnasse Railroad Station in Paris. This, of course, was wonderfully shown in the Martin Scorsese 2011 film Hugo. And it seems, though, the legacy of one of the industry's greatest pioneers was all but forgotten. But in 1924, the journalist George Michel Colsac managed to track down him and interview him for a book on cinema history. This led to an interest in his work. Finally, in December 1929, a gallo retrospective of his work was held at the Salle Pelliel in Paris. In his memoirs, Melies said of the event, the experience was one of the most brilliant moments of his life. Eventually, Georges Melies was made a, and I'm going to let the internet speak for me because I cannot pronounce this, Chevalier de Légion d'Honneur which is the Royal Order of the Legion of Honor, which is the highest French order of merit, both military and civil. The medal of which was presented to him in October 1931 by Louis Lumiere. Lumiere said that Méliès was the creator of the cinematic spectacle. Sadly, this did nothing to help with his situation. He continued to live in poverty. In a letter written to French filmmaker 
Eugene Lost, Meliers wrote that, Luckily enough, I am strong and in good health, but it is hard to work 14 hours a day without getting my Sundays or holidays in an icebox in winter and a furnace in summer. Meliers became very ill. André Langlois, who was a pioneer of film preservation, had become a very close friend and visited him with another friend shortly before his death. Meliers showed him one of his last drawings of a champagne bottle with the cork popped and bubbling over. He told them, Laugh, my friends, laugh with me, laugh for me, because I dream your dreams. Georges Meliers died of cancer on January 21st, 1938, at the age of 76. He managed to complete the scene, but he knew something was still missing. He still hadn't solved the problem of the girl mistaking him for a rich man. It would bother him to the very end of production. After 534 days, with no shooting for most of them, he returned to the flower stand sequence. He woke up one morning, he said, and it suddenly occurred to him, a slamming door of the automobile. So, of course, what happens is that he, he goes to the girl, uh, says he'd like a flower or a bunch, gives her everything he has in the world, which could well be a dollar or a dime, and as she's reaching for her change, the rich man walks, she hears the rich man walk back across the sidewalk, get in the car, slam the door, and the car takes off. And she's about to give the change, and she says, oh, thank you, sir. And then Chaplin looks at her and realizes he's not gonna get anything back, and turns round and tiptoes away without his change. A little bit before I go, sadly, only about 200 out of the over 500 films Georges Méliès created still exist today. Between Méliès' destruction of the original negatives, the French army's confiscation of his prints, and the typical deterioration of early films, most are gone. Though now and again someone discovers one. Many that we have today are due to the paper prints of each frame he submitted to the U.S. Library of Congress. And one more thing, you know, I'm not sure how to pronounce Pathé, the British film company. I looked it up and everybody seems to pronounce it differently, so I just went with Pathé. Right or wrong, I don't know, you tell me. Now I want to apologize for being late on this week's episode, but I'll probably be late again next week too. So many things going on right now. That being said, my next episode is going to be about Charlie Chaplin's 1931 American silent romantic comedy, City Lights. I hope you'll join me. Now listen up. We have a Facebook page, and we would love to read your comments. It's called Celluloid Days. Please join us. I also have a Twitter account. It's at Celluloid underscore days. You know, I'm always looking for film suggestions. The more strange and unusual, the better. The email for the show is daysofcelluloid, all one word, at gmail.com. Feel free to email me for any reason, even if it's just to say hi. And if you could leave me a review at wherever you stream the show, I'd be forever grateful. Well, thanks for listening. I'll be back hopefully soon with another episode. Take care. Stay healthy. Bye-bye. They're under the goddamn ground. Tell them about the Twinkie.
What about the Twinkie? They had 500 years of democracy and peace, and what did that produce? The cuckoo clock. Dallas multipass. Yeah. Multipass. Uh, you know it's multipass. Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. The high court may well sentence you to torture. Can you play the piano? I can. And sing at the same time. That's 